Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we heard from one of Chicago's top musical talents, revisited the glory days of teen movie comedies, and discussed the birth of America. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for July 31st, 2020. Mario Smith welcomed celebrated local musician and percussionist Micaiah McRaven. McRaven chatted about his new project, two new records, and a documentary film, all titled Universal Beings. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Joining me via Skype is a, an amazingly accomplished musician, composer, really, really good brother. Um, Micaiah McRaven is uh, also the, the lead in a documentary called Universal Beings, his last LP Universal Beings, still in rotation on my little brand new Victrola. I play it as much as I can. Ladies and gentlemen, my buddy Micaiah McCraven, welcome to the show. What's up, man? Well, uh, chilling, man. Thank you for having me. Man, please. I'm glad you said yes. I don't get big celebrities. Ah, uh, so so let, 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 let's talk about first before we talk about universal beings and about the documentary. I want to ask you. We th- there was a discussion that came up on Instagram, uh, courtesy of Justin Dillard, America's favorite uh, Fender Rhodes player and chef. I don't know if you knew that about him, uh, gourmet chef Justin Dillard. Um, he talked about the um, Donny Hathaway event that we did last summer, mm-hmm. and. I have not really had a chance to talk to you about it. I've seen you a couple, saw you at Junius's uh, release and all that, but we were reflecting about that day. And I was talking about how you and Charles Heath were in the pocket when uh, Yao was singing, you were meant for me. What was that day like for you playing? I just, I gotta ask, and then I'll get to the business of universal beings and stuff. But oh but man, that was, that, a, like? that was such a uh, beautiful, and familial uh of event you know i mean i remember uh when Corey was up there with his daughter mm-hmm. you know i was almost brought to tears you know mm-hmm. just, and it was just such uh a lot of love and just such a it was a really warm warm event a lot of fun and and um i'm really glad i could make it because it was really tight for me to be there um, yeah when we were putting it together, you know, um, I, so so just so you know how it went, for seven years I had been trying to do that. And then one thing happened that wouldn't enable it to go, and another thing happened. I think by virtue of me working at the promontory, it kind of made it a little bit easier, because I used to see you be like, you know, I got something in mind, man. Got something I want to do. You're like, yeah, all right, whatever, let me know. And then when let me know happened, universal beings just exploded, and you guys were in Europe. And it was like, are they going to be able to make it? I don't know. And then everybody came together, and it was one of the greatest things I've ever, ever been a part of. And that moment when Corey has his daughter in his arms, there are pictures of that that are very breathtaking, and it will bring you to tears, man. It is a really powerful uh, testament to just what that day was. It was really a family event. So thank you again for that, man. Yeah, thank you for, for, for doing everything to make that happen. Don't worry. There's another one coming. Not, not, not Donnie, but, you know, it's, yeah. it's in the hopper. Uh, let's talk about Universal Beings real quick, man. You have been really, it, 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 that, that album is still resonating for a lot of people. And I've seen you perform it a few times. Um, what is it about Universal Beings for you that makes it 
such a powerful statement? Um, I mean, for me, you know, it was just a kind of a, a it's a, I think to me, it's a more about just kind of this moment and celebrating, you know, the moment in the music where I felt like there was a lot of music made by young um, jazz artists or, or what, so to speak, that was kind of very powerful. I wanted to connect with different people around that I had kind of had the opportunity to connect with in different in different scenes, you know, from Chicago mm-hmm. across to London, to New York, uh, to California and, and, and L.A. and feeling like I had met all these people and felt like there was kind of like a, there was kind of a vibe that was going around from a, a lot of different places. And I was able to kind of feel like let's let's go and let's connect with people in the moment and create something that's organic and uh, like boundless. And, and I don't know. It's connected with people, I guess. So, I would I would say so. I think one of the things about Universal Beings is that, like for example, the song "Young Genius" is about an amazing musician who uh, Joel, who uh, I had the pleasure of checking out at the Promontory, not knowing that the song was written about him until after I saw him perform. But I see why, and you paying homage to to people like him. Um, that's a that's a big give back when you don't really have to do that. And, and and I'm I'm just well, wondering. You know, I think the music. You know, it calls. For, I mean, we made that music together, and part of the process of making it in 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 the style like I make it with mm-hmm. using improvisation and and using the musicians around me and and highlighting their voice as the source material that then I scope with in my process. I feel like everybody is part of that and deserves you know the the recognition. And, you know, just kind of, you know, there's, there's little hints to all of the cats throughout right. the music, you know. And in the in the moment uh, when I did that, too, you know, it was really important to have everybody's names really prominently featured. And so, you know, I feel like that's part of the thing is, 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 is creating and celebrating community, you know, and, and working together collaboratively. How much of your music is is based on your because I know you do the improvisational setup set for your your compositions but I'm wondering about your activism how much of your how much of the activism is 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 carried out uh, in your music I mean uh, some of it is just in the way of my upbringing and my life you know um, I've grew up in a very uh, kind of subversive inter an international family uh, traveling across borders a lot. And so a lot of my politics and the way that I do my activism is through the music, you know, mm-hmm. and, and in the places that you interact and the way that you, you give back to your community too. It's not even just activism, but it's, it's how do I try to create platforms to bring up the people around me? You know, so we can come up together and create something that is better because the the platforms that are left for us uh, don't work for us. Can we or, or can we assume then that the, the future projects will, will be just as um, community based and, and have that activism angle uh, to it for you? 
Uh, I mean, absolutely. You know, I think I'll always kind of be uh, community based in terms of like who I work with. And, and, you know, I'm a very I'm a very uh, loyal musician, you know. And so Mm -hmm. in terms of like that aspect of universal beings, um, that's always going to be my desire to connect with people and build build relationships and and create powerful music to uh to do something in the world i mean i feel like that's just that's what that's what we do <laughs> yeah for sure for sure um any before we talk about the documentary do you have any new projects available that you need um, a very silky voice to do some like weird voiceover stuff on like your boy mario smith maybe yeah well, I'm working on a new record. I'm working on a new record in these times that mm. definitely deals with, um, you know, a large amount of of issues dealing that we're dealing with today, past, present, and future. You know, because you know, no matter which way you lean or what you say, we all live in these times. And For sure, are 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 unique. Um, so that's that's the project that I've been working on for a while um, and will be coming to fruition very, very soon. Who's your personnel on that? Well, this is another, uh, like, a large amount. There's a lot of cats on it. But, you know, you hear people like Junius Paul and Jeff Parker and, and mm. uh, Matt Gold. You'll hear mm. uh, Joe Ross and Randy Younger, um, you know, Jeff Strings and percussion and a lot of people. Um, we're with Micaiah McCrave and Micaiah is, uh, has a new documentary that is going to be released soon. It is called Universal Beings. Tell me about the documentary. I know the album is New York, Chicago, LA, and London. Um, do we see that in the doc? Yeah, I mean, the doc was just basically um, going around and documenting uh, sessions that we did in the creation of the record, you know? So going to the places you get to see some of the shows, kind of what the environment was. So it gives some visual context to what you're hearing. And then, you know, a lot of the tracks from this, this ENF sides were put together, chopping up videos, uh, live videos mm. for the, for the film. And, mm. and so that created some new material because we were giving some, um, some shots that, you know, of parts of the concerts that hadn't been, didn't, didn't reach the record, and then so I did kind of uh, new new chops and new beats out of that, with the video in mind to kind of create a visual representation and kind of weave it into interviews of people who are on the record, uh, and you know just different people who are around during the process and just kind of uh, overview of what that and it kind of connects a little bit to my history. Um, and my parents and, 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 and my story and it kind of weaves in and out of that. There's some footage uh, with my dad and Archie Shep mm. and my mom and wow. performing and, and, and so it's just kind of a, a, does a whole whole overview of, of, of kind of the record and how it connects with, with my life. <laughs> Thank 
what about talk about plans to retire? No, the only sto- statement I had made was there are a few people who would like to see me uh, retire. Uh, my wife and mother and friends. And, uh, I just mentioned that fact. Like, right now it looks like you know, she'll be pretty active. Uh, no plan at all to retire after now. No. What do you think of Archie Ward as an opponent? He is one of the best. The gamers certainly was in there fighting all the way. I hit him with plenty of good punches. He avoided quite a few. He is a top target challenge. One of the toughest, along with the first Ezra Charles fight. What about the knockdown, Rock? How did you do right after that? Okay. No, I wasn't. I was up in the counter, too. And uh, I remember just where my went, hand was. And uh, I went right after I-94 chatted with Mike McPadden, author and editor of Teen Movie Hell. A cinema enthusiast, McPadden discusses the surge in teen comedies in the 1980s, how these films looked in the Me Too era, and why B-movies have died out. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Mike, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a thrill. Really appreciate it. Let's start off with the basics. I mean, I think people that hear the, the title of this uh, realize that this is a reference to movies and a movie guide. Uh, and you had a background in, in zines as well, I understand. Can you talk a little bit about how you got interested, first of all, in the teen movie genre? And I kind of like to then expand that a little bit and just talk to our our listeners, excuse me, not our viewers, uh, about why uh, there is such a fascination with kind of niche movie genres and cult cinema in general. Okay, terrific. So uh, in terms of the teen movie genre, as it's covered in the book, so the book goes um, basically from uh, the late 60s when I was born um, with a, a movie called The First Time in 1968. Uh to the early 90s, uh, the, the most recent movie covered in there is uh, National Lampoon's Senior Trip from 95. But uh, really, the main focus is on the 1980s, which, is, which was the, you know, incredible pop culture takeover, you know, however momentarily, even though it, lasted, it did last a few years, of, uh, you know, R-rated, raunchy comedies aimed at teenage audiences that were about teenage characters. And the reason I was fascinated with it was because that's when I was a teenager. Uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High opened in New York, where I'm from. I'm from Brooklyn. I've lived in Chicago since 2003, though. So, uh, But it opened in New York on September 7th, 1982, which was the first Friday of my freshman year in high school. And uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, a film I hate, uh, opened the Friday after June 6th, 1986, which was the Friday after I graduated high school. So those four years really are the heart of the matter when it comes to these type of movies. And look, I was a teenager. These were made for teenagers. They were for me. And uh, I identified with uh, the anarchic, uh, anti-authoritarian bent of them. And, um, 
you know, I, I had the uh, hormonal issues that these films uh, serviced as well. So <laughs> yeah. that's how it came to be. Well, let's let's back up a little bit because teen movies um, are not anything new. I mean, the, the first kind of beach party movies right. started hitting in the 1950s. American International Productions had an entire series that I think older listeners will remember with Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon. Uh, called the Beach Party series. In fact, it was six movies, including one set at a ski lodge, which mysteriously had nothing to do with beaches. Um, and there were other uh, you know, film houses and studios, including Fox and MGM, that put out a variety of, of these kind of teen exploitation comedies from the 1960s right through uh, basically the early 70s. What is it specifically about the the jump to a more, I guess, high school or college setting that we saw in the 1980s that is so fascinating. Hey, Mike, I want to tie in on that, too. Would you say that it's those movies, you know, they had those, I don't know what the genre would be, like Blackboard Jungle and things like that, the urban teens that are gone those are, Yeah, juvenile delinquent movies yeah, in the yeah. 50s. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, like, as with rock and roll, um, you know, teenagers became a defined market force in the 1950s with the baby boomer generation. And uh, so it, you know, kids like lurid stuff. They like, uh, you know, uh, goofy stuff. And uh, so you have on the one hand, the juvenile delinquent movies of the 50s, which for the teenage audience was mostly wish fulfillment. I wish I could beat up my teacher. And then <laughs> the beach party movies in the 60s, of which not only were there AIP, but there were many, many imitators. And Ski Party is one of the best movies uh, in there. James Brown performs in it, right? Yeah, uh, which is oh, another nice. great aspect of those movies is they had all the they showcased all the rock acts of the of the day. Um, so and, and they were very surrealistic and Mad Magazine like, and you know, kind of kitchen sink anything goes, breaking the fourth wall. And that spirit was really carried over into the eighties movies. Now, why it switched. So really, the um, Rosetta Stone of the teen movies covered in the book is American Graffiti, which, uh, which I really believe is a work of genius. I think it's one of the great films ever made. I wish the director had stopped there and not moved on to his next project in 1977. Which was Star Wars, uh, by the way, if you're not picking up on that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he didn't. So uh, the, the world is what it is. But... Uh, what it what it is then is at that point uh, the baby boomers who had first uh, see you know experienced rock and roll and then uh, the beach party movies and then the sixties and then the uh, you know the freeing up and the loosening of what was allowable on screen with the uh, R rating in nineteen sixty eight from the MPAA uh, then you know but turned to their own nostalgia so that's why so many like Porky's uh, which is sort of the definitive like. When we were, when I was a teenager, we just called these Porky's movies. That was the catch-all name for the genre. Porky's was this giant blockbuster hit. It's a very low-budget Canadian film um, about uh, high school reprobates and um, their misadventures in and out of locker rooms that made just a staggering amount of money and uh, begat all these imitators, both from the studios and, and from the many, many... Uh, indie and exploitation houses. So uh, it was the, the people that were making this, the, the basically the guys that were uh, making this were just rewriting their own adolescence, uh, you know, with uh, screenplays and movie cameras and whatever they could get on screen with an R rating. 
So I think that's how the shift happened. It was really American graffiti, which which made in adjusted dollars something like seven hundred and seventy five million dollars in theaters, and was nominated for best picture and everything. So, so I wanted to talk up Mike a little bit. So there was the Hayes Code, which was yeah, and it was basically they were censoring movies, if I'm correct, and there was that started in the late thirties. Is that correct? Yeah, and then that went up to sixty eight, and a lot of these films. Uh, were a response to that or like a freeing of what they could and couldn't be done? Well, let, let's back up just for people that don't know the Hayes Code. There is a period in the golden age of filmmaking in Hollywood called the Pre-Code Era where films were made with, with recognizable stars in sound. I mean, people like Olivia de Havilland. Oh, and, sound. Wasn't that what kicked all this off? Well, it was, it was basically there was a concern over the depiction of loose women, drugs, marital infidelity, and the Hayes Code came in as a response to this. Much as it happened in, in comic books, actually, it was a reaction to the idea that people were being polluted by this entertainment and it would lead America down a path of moral ruin. So you've got to remember when that came in. Uh, the golden age of Hollywood is, is actually you know, designated pre-code and post-code. And it's, it's very interesting because many films that were made post-1939 uh, had to do incredibly bizarre and elaborate things to not fall afoul of it, such as never showing a married couple in bed together. You know, that's why Dick Van Dyke on television was actually never, you know, in bed with his wife, which is odd. So in the 1960s, when some of that loosened and we started having the first X-rated and R-rated films, and Mike, you know, I, I know you can talk about this and really elaborate on this, but it was really kind of broken in the art house first. Serious directors started making films that challenged that in part in response to changing wars and to the Vietnam War. Well, I think it really it started with foreign films um, being imported into America and finding an audience. And uh, they would play in uh, big city art houses and, um, you know, we, we presented as respectable entertainment and they would not. Uh, harassed by the law. Um, and then, uh, you know, the exploitation business took advantage of that. And the, the first wave of those were like nudist colony movies where there would just be sort of these uh, documentary footage of happy people playing volleyball, on, uh, you know, on the nude beach. And uh, they were very popular. And uh, and from there, there was the early development of the uh, exploitation movies that were uh, driven by nudity. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, art films came into it with uh, sort of Andy Warhol and Andy Milligan's um, Vapors, which was a short film set in a gay bathhouse. Uh, so the taboos started falling. And by the late 60s, 1968, Jack Valenti, the head of the MPAA, just said, uh, look, we have to address this. We don't want government censorship of our products or the, the uh Industry will set will police itself with this the rating system. So, um, you know, and, and whatever it was initially, G, G, P, M, and X, and the X rating, of course, just meant um, no one under seventeen admitted, and there were serious, many serious films, many great seventies art films, six late sixties seventies art films that were rated X. Midnight Cowboy being the most famous because it won Best Picture, and then that was the X rating was then usurped by pornographers who just said, oh. Uh, I'll just slap an X on this, and here we go. There are a couple of things I really appreciate about this book. One of them is the combination of humor and really interesting facts. So in reference to what we were just talking about, the actual first full frontal nudity scene in cinema, I didn't know this, was like 1915. 
And yeah, I, and the first yeah. popular one was Hedy Lamarr in Ecstasy. Okay, right. When when and before she became a major star. Was that twenties? Uh, late twenties, early thirties, like right? Thirty-one, yeah. maybe. Yeah, yeah. she yeah. was a, she was an underage, I believe, too, at the time. And uh, the other thing is, it's a massive archive. That's it. It had to be a lot of work, man. And I, I know it was a collaborative effort. Can you talk a little bit about how you got people together? Who who the contributors are and, and how it all came sure. together. And also, Mike, how many of these have you seen? I, I, I've been dying to I've seen them all. I've seen every one of them. That's amazing. <laughs> how Except I, I didn't one, count. Uh, that's one called Young Lust that's lost and I'm dying to see. Uh, and before I get to the contributors, I'll just I'll talk about Young Lust for a minute. So Gary Weiss, who was a brilliant documentarian in the first the early years of Saturday Night Live, back when it was it was Sure, to its initial mission as a variety show for freaks, um, he would shoot these little, like, kind of three-minute New York documentaries. But he got a movie deal and uh, made Young Lust, which was a – the best I can tell, it's a combination of the teen comedy and a soap opera parody. And uh, it may or may not have been finished. It was apparently screened once to a violent audience reaction and has been completely lost. But there's an amazing poster for it that's in the book um, that depicts like a teenage uh, couple making out, but there are many arms involved. Uh, <laughs> but And one of them is a horse hoof. Have a nice Whoa, night. traffic's backed up all the way down Morgan, and I see why. Uh, looks like your buddy is at it again. Don't call him my buddy. Kyle, what are you doing? Jess, you're just in time. Let's do a new episode about this. About you washing cars? Well, this is the Seisman Sudski Festival, a semi-annual Bridgeport quasi-celebrity car wash and laundry. I do it every... Oh, uh, hold up. Car wash and laundry? Yes, exactly. People bring their dirty clothes to me. I soap them up and I wash their car with them. I got all the neighborhood heroes involved. Uh, over there is a guy who played uh, music on John Daly's show once. How do you do? Go away. And of course, we got Steve from Bernice's. Hi, Jess. Oh, hey, Steve. Oh, well, this seems weirdly pragmatic for you, Kyle. Yes, I know. And just for a few bucks... All Bridgeporters can come to the GoPro Alley for a car and laundry wash. It's like the only time I ever clean anything. Impressive crowd you got here. Man, I've been doing this for years. Where does the other end of that hose go? Oh, I just ran it through the mail slot up to Eric's place. <laughs> he never notices, but it's on the DL, so. Actually, here, hold the hold the hose for a minute. I gotta do this. Oh, oh my God. For the listeners, I should explain. Please don't. Kyle, are you wearing a bikini? Are you wearing my bikini? Hey, I found it on the floor fair and square. Whose floor? Jamie's. I live there, too. That's also my floor. Yeah, but you rent. You don't own it. So, like, you know, whatever, right? Not a thing. I definitely don't want that back. And now what my audience has been waiting for. That's more technically impressive than I would have thought possible. I have to say, everyone's mesmerized by... Is that my blouse? I wonder, are you washing that car with my clothes? don't blame me. Jamie said he didn't want the car wash. He just wanted the laundry did. Oh, here comes the meltdown. I answer the phone. Jamie, I cannot believe you let Kyle wash the car with my clothes. They ain't clothes, the laundry. Gotta go... 
This week on The Trump Diaries, person, woman, man, camera, TV. Republicans fail to pass a stimulus bill and Trump says we don't really care. Trump calls for the election to be delayed. Trump endorses a doctor who believes in demon sperm. Trump defies the Supreme Court. The economy craters with the GDP falling by 33% and 150,000 people are now dead in the United States. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 1282, July 24th. The CDC published new guidance recommending that schools reopen in the fall two weeks after Trump criticized the original guidance as very tough and expensive. The new guidelines read like a political statement and stress, quote, the importance of reopening America's schools this fall. They also repeatedly describe children as low risk for being infected or for transmitting the coronavirus. This is untrue. Earlier this month, an internal CDC document warned that fully reopening schools would be the, quote, highest risk for spread of the virus. Trump said he would deploy as many as 75,000 federal agents into U.S. cities as part of his surge against violent crime. Trump told Fox News he would dispatch 50,000, 60,000 people will go into all the cities, any of the cities, we're ready. Trump abruptly canceled the Republican National Convention in Jacksonville, Florida. A small subset of delegates will still formally renominate Trump on August 24th in Charlotte at an event scheduled just to last four hours. The Senate has backed off some of the most onerous demands of the White House in the next round of stimulus, with payments to individuals, additional aid to small businesses, and a partial extension of enhanced unemployment benefits. A payroll tax cut inexplicably sought by Trump despite heavy opposition has been dropped, as has been a cut in funds for testing. A federal judge ordered that Trump's former lawyer and fixer Michael Cohen be immediately released to home confinement after finding that federal officials had retaliated against him after learning he was writing a tell-all memoir about Trump. Cohen had sued with the ACLU after he was suddenly remanded to jail after being released and asked to sign a document saying he would not write or publish. He refused. Trump drew ridicule when he declared it was nothing short of amazing that he did so well on a cognitive test that, among other things, required him to identify an elephant. To demonstrate just how hard he said the test really was, he went on Fox News to recite over and over the words that he had been asked to remember in the right order. Person, woman, man, camera, TV. It should be noted that the Montreal Cognitive Assessment is meant to test for signs of dementia, Alzheimer's, or other conditions. It is not, as Trump talked about it, as if he had aced an IQ test. And Stephen Miller's grandmother has died of COVID-19. Miller's uncle blames Miller and the Trump administration for her death. Day 1283, July 25th. Weeks of violent clashes between federal agents and protesters in Portland, Oregon have reignited demonstrations in America, with thousands taking to the street in protest this weekend. In Seattle, demonstrations on police violence led to confrontations with crowds. Being pepper sprayed and tear gassed, there were injuries on both sides. Flash grenades were used on civilians there as well. In Los Angeles, crowds lobbed projectiles of police after police reportedly opened fire on them without cause. One man was shot and killed in Austin, Texas. Large protests also occurred in Virginia, Colorado, and of course Portland. Hundreds protested here in Chicago as well. We have now passed 4 million cases in the United States for coronavirus, just 15 days after we hit 3 million cases. Another 70,000 cases were recorded on Friday. California and the Gulf Coast are now America's biggest hotspots. There are massive case counts in Texas and Florida, but Alabama, Louisiana, and Mississippi are now not far behind. Mississippi in particular is seeing deaths increase at one of the highest rates in the nation. Deaths have now hit 145,000 Americans. 
We hit 100 days to the election. New polls show Democrat Joe Biden holding a commanding double-digit lead over Trump that is widening. More worrying to Republicans is that Democrats are now showing strength well down the ticket, leading to fears of a wipeout in federal and state elections. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said he would sue after the Department of Homeland Security admitted it made false statements when it blocked New York residents from participating in trusted traveler programs, including global entry. In February, the DHS blocked New Yorkers from a program over a state law that limited immigration agencies' access to the state driver's license data. In a related story, Republicans are putting finishing touches on a relief bill, but they seem to lack leverage. Steve Manchin said families would once again see a repeat of $1,200 payments, but the Republicans also want to slash unemployment benefits and give businesses wide liability exemptions, both of which Democrats say are non-starters. Enhanced unemployment benefits will expire this week. Democrats have already passed a $3 trillion relief bill. Day 1,284, July 26. Trump's National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien has tested positive for coronavirus, making him the most senior White House official known to have contracted COVID-19. O'Brien is said to have mild symptoms and is in quarantine. Trump yesterday reversed course again and urged governors to, quote, open up their states. Republicans are seeking a dramatic $400 per week reduction in unemployment benefits in their economic recovery package. Republicans have bizarrely argued that the benefits prevent workers from working. There is no evidence of this, and the aim of the benefit is actually to keep vulnerable populations away from the workplace. Democrats have already passed a relief bill and adamantly opposed cutting what has been a key lifeline for pandemic-affected workers. The late Representative John Lewis lay in state in the Capitol Rotunda. Lewis, the first black lawmaker to receive one of the nation's highest honors, died of pancreatic cancer on the 17th. A civil rights icon, Lewis's viewing will be private. Trump said he would not attend. When Lewis died, Trump took 17 hours to issue a terse statement. When Regis Philbin died, Trump issued a statement within minutes. Twitter limited some of Donald Trump Jr.'s account features after the president's son reshared false claims about the anti-malaria drug hydroxychloroquine as a coronavirus treatment. According to a screenshot shared by an advisor to Trump, Twitter concluded he had violated its policy on spreading, quote, misleading and potentially harmful information. He was locked out for 12 hours. Employees of ICE, Customs and Border Protection and the TSA have sued Trump for hazard pay claiming they're entitled to it for being exposed to the coronavirus on the job. And Trump claimed that his Twitter's trending topic section featured too much criticism of him, claiming such alleged bias against him is disgusting, ridiculous, very unfair, and somehow illegal. Day 1285, July 27th. The pandemic continues to dominate the landscape. Worldwide, we have now passed 16 million total infections. Numbers continue to trend in the wrong direction in the USA. More than 146,000 have died. Florida's caseload has nearly hit 425,000. That surpasses New York. It is currently only behind California, a state with nearly double its population. Dr. Deborah Burke said several states in the Midwest and South should close immediately as four states set single-day records for infections. Louisiana, Tennessee, Oklahoma, and Alaska, Indiana, and Ohio are all also surging. Trump said he will no longer throw out the first ceremonial pitch for the New York Yankees on August 15th, quote, because of his strong focus on the coronavirus. 
Trump's announcement that he would throw out a pitch came just hours before Dr. Anthony Fauci was to throw out the first pitch for the Nationals. Trump's announcement came as a surprise to the Yankees as they had not invited him to throw out the first pitch. Trump, in fact, has never thrown out a first pitch in a baseball game while in office. Trump repealed a fair housing regulation he claimed would lead to, quote, destruction of the country's suburbs. Local governments have been required to track patterns of poverty and segregation in order to gain access to federal housing funds and meet obligations under the 1968 Fair Housing Act. Trump made the announcement and then tweeted a racist article with the message, quote, the suburban housewives of America must read this article. Biden will destroy your neighborhood and your American dream. I will preserve it and make it even better. Trump followed by saying, I am happy to inform all of the people living their suburban lifestyle dream that you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhood. Trump's lawyers filed another legal attack on the subpoena for his tax returns by the Manhattan District Attorney, arguing the request is, quote, wildly overbroad and issued in bad faith. Trump asked a federal judge in Manhattan to declare the subpoena from the District Attorney of New York, Cyrus Vance, was invalid, un unenforceable, and blocked his accountant, Mazars USA, from turning over his tax documents. The Supreme Court actually ruled against Trump last month. Vance said to the judge, quote, what the president is seeking here is delay in an attempt to run out the clock on the statute of limitations. The nationwide Sinclair Broadcast Network pulled a planned airing of a baseless conspiracy theory suggesting that Dr. Fauci was responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic. Eric Bowling, a former Fox News personality, interviewed Judy Mikovits. She is an anti-vaccine activist and maker of the widely discredited Plandemic video, which has been circulated by QAnon. They claim that her and her lawyer are to sue Fauci. During the pre-recorded interview, Mikovits, who is referred to as, quote, an expert in virology, claims that Fauci manufactured the coronavirus and shipped it to China. This is completely false. Sinclair is, of course, one of the biggest private station operators in America. And Trump ally and potential Republican presidential candidate Tom Cotton said that slavery was, quote, a necessary evil to the development of our country. Day 1286, July 28th. A new federal report shows the number of states in the red zone from the pandemic has grown to 21. America's death toll hit a grim milestone as we passed 150,000 fatalities. 4.3 million Americans have become infected. Florida reported its highest single-day death toll since the pandemic began, with 186 deaths and nearly 10,000 new cases. Meanwhile, Trump sent a flurry of tweets resharing messages accusing Dr. Anthony Fauci of misleading the country on coronavirus treatments and posted a video of a doctor falsely claiming that hydroxychloroquine is a cure for the virus. Twitter later took down the videos of that doctor making false claims, citing their rules on spreading misinformation. When asked this morning by ABC News' George Stephanopoulos how he can continue to do his job while the president undermines him, Fauci replied, quote, You know, George, I don't know how to address that. I'm just going to continue doing my job. Vice President Mike Pence met with some of the doctors who were featured in that video. Of course, Trump shared it before it was removed. It was viewed 13 million times. That video featured members of the group America's Frontline Doctors standing on the steps of the Supreme Court claiming that masks aren't necessary to prevent the spread and promoting hydroxychloroquine as a cure. 
The most prominent person in that video, named Stella Emanuel, has said in the past that DNA from space aliens is being used in medicine. Gynecological problems like endometriosis are, quote, caused by people having sex in their dreams with demons and witches. It's from demon sperm. Emanuel has also said that many individuals in positions of power in our world are actually lizard aliens. Trump abruptly ended a press conference when he was asked about the video. Quote, there was a woman who was spectacular in her statements about it and she's had tremendous success with it and they took her voice off. I thought her voice was an important voice, but I know nothing about her. He finished by saying, quote, Dr. Fauci, he's got a very good approval rating and I like that. It's good. And yet he's highly thought of, but nobody likes me. It can only be my personality. He then suddenly left. Attorney General William Barr got a rough reception at a congressional hearing with the chair of the House Judiciary Committee essentially calling him incompetent. Jerry Nadler said the Attorney General sought conflict with Americans at an unprecedented scale and acted only as a factotum for Trump. Barr made a number of questionable statements during the grilling, including the claim he does not read Trump's tweets and that he had not been influenced by the president. Trump directed the CIA to block former CIA Director John Brennan from accessing his official records. The CIA generally allows former employees to look at those records to make sure they are not violating the Official Secrets Act. Brennan's book is to be published in October. A federal judge blocked Trump from moving forward with a so-called public charge test meant to deny green cards to immigrants who have received Medicaid, food stamps, or housing vouchers. The state of New York had sued in light of the coronavirus pandemic. Trump reportedly plans to allow DREAMers to extend deportation protections for a year and then attempt to end the program after the election. The Supreme Court already knocked back Trump on an earlier attempt to spike DACA in a decision that some note expanded presidential executive orders. Trump is said to plan to deny new applications in defiance of the Supreme Court as well. Day 1287, July 29th. Trump said publicly he did not care about the passage of the next stimulus bill, saying, quote, you work on the payments for the people, the rest of it, we're so far apart, we don't care. We really don't care. Unemployment benefits for Americans are to expire this week. The two sides, Republicans and Democrats, are about $2 trillion apart. Trump then claimed, quote, we want to stop the evictions. However, the Republican proposal his administration helped draft has no measure to do so. Trump has dismissed the Republican package as, quote, semi-irrelevant, and he then slammed his own party for distancing themselves from his efforts to secure funding for a new FBI headquarters in Washington. Quote, Republicans should go back to school and learn. Trump has long fought to get the FBI a new building because he wants to develop the existing building into a hotel that won't compete with his existing Trump property in Washington, D.C. Trump suddenly claimed that large portions of the United States are corona-free. This is not close to being true. Trump's trade advisor, meanwhile, refused to answer what Trump meant when he said the U.S. is corona-free, but instead touted hydrochloroquine as a treatment for coronavirus. Peter Navarro said, quote, I'm sitting on 63 million doses at the FEMA stockpile, and that would save that's enough for 4 million Americans. Navarro, of course, is a crank economist who has harshly publicly criticized Dr. Fauci. Representative Louis Gamert, a Texas Republican who has frequently refused to wear a mask in public at the Capitol, tested positive for the coronavirus. Gomart has been in frequent contact with other lawmakers. He then blamed wearing a mask for catching the virus. The governor of Oregon announced that federal agents would leave the city of Portland after repeated clashes with demonstrators. Those agents began to fall back last night. Certain federal troops remain in other cities, however, including Kansas City, Chicago, Albuquerque, and Seattle. 
And Trump said that he has not spoken to Russian President Vladimir Putin about Russian bounties given to militants to kill American forces in Afghanistan. Trump told Axios he did not bring up the issue because it was, quote, a phone call to discuss other things. Trump then claimed the reports were not believable and fake news. He did not directly answer when pressed if he believed those reports, saying, nobody brings up China. They always bring Russia, Russia, Russia. Day 1288, July 30th. Struggling badly in the polls, Trump called for the election to be delayed, which is something he cannot legally do. Quote, with universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. It will be a great embarrassment to the USA. Delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote. The move, which has long been feared by observers, increases the chances that Trump and his core supporters will not accept the legitimacy of the election should he lose to former Vice President Joe Biden. Claiming that Germany is delinquent on paying dues to NATO, which is false, Trump pulled 12,000 troops from that country. The move is widely seen as punitive. Worth noting is that Russia has long agitated for those troops to be removed. Defense Secretary Mark Esper tried to claim the move was not punitive. This was undermined minutes later when Trump said, quote, Germany pays Russia billions of dollars a year for energy, and we are supposed to protect Germany from Russia. What's all that about? Germany is very delinquent in their 2% feed in NATO. We are therefore moving some troops out of Germany. The economic toll from the pandemic continues to swell, with figures today showing our gross domestic product shrunk by almost 34%. That is by far the highest slump in America since World War II. In contrast, during the Great Recession, we lost 4% of GDP. A watchdog group accused Trump's re-election campaign of laundering money. The campaign legal center said nearly $170 million worth of campaign spending has been put through so-called pass-through vendors that then pay subcontractors on behalf of the campaign. The complaint says American Made Media Consultants and Parscale Strategy, two companies run by campaign leadership, have been disguised as vendors offering services to the campaign. 60% of Americans say the worst effects of the pandemic are yet to come. 30% of Americans approve of Trump's response to the coronavirus. Just 36% of Americans approve of Trump's performance overall. These are the Trump Diaries. Studio A has been closed due to the pandemic. Please enjoy this encore presentation from Anne Fang. They were recorded and mastered by Arya Shellist.
This is A-W-C-Y-F-M. Well, I'm sorry for my audio quality. I'm sorry I can't be with you tonight, Rowan, but there was an emergency here um, with mask fabrication. And I think this is a great time for us. I think this is a great time for us to remind all of you from us here at Tech Brothers, even though we are quickly on a path back to the newer normal that we were promised from the Mallow 21 pandemic, there is a reminder that is in order. You still need to wear your mask. Every single mask that is in production was designed to be worn for between 8 and 16 hours per day. Every single day, no matter if you are inside or outside or you are on errands, um, a mask is required to be worn, and it's required by law to be worn correctly. You see, most masks nowadays, they have a higher level of protectability. You have the filter, you have the fabric, you have the comfort band and the, uh, and, and the, and the softness sticks along the side and top to give you a luxurious feeling while you're in your mask. But they also have the inner body disinfectant that is constantly being radiated from the inside of the mask. If you are not wearing your mask correctly, that disinfectant won't be able to get inside of you and do the best work for your body. Right. So this is a reminder that everybody out there should be wearing their mask between 8 and 16 hours per day and should be wearing it correctly. Or, well, I don't have to tell you what's going to happen if you don't. You know, it's excellent that you bring that up because at Simon Amy and the, the disciples of Simon Amy, the students of Simon Amy, we were initially – uh, very wary of the the mask sort of paradigm, the concept of restricting your airflow um, oh, in I such know. a manner. Uh, we were, and but ultimately, uh, Simon Amy himself uh, sent out a notice expressing that while the mask itself isn't necessarily recommended, the extra um, musculature that will develop around your lungs as you inhale through the mask will ultimately result in a, a net positive in terms of, uh, of being able to breathe at higher altitudes, at being able to do Mongolian throat singing for longer periods of time. So while we, you and I, Kai, might not necessarily agree on the purpose of the mask and the why to do it, we can at least both agree on that it will have a net positive effect on, on citizens of Chicago and of the wider world. I mean, ultimately, that's very well said, Rowan. I didn't agree with all of it, but that was very well said. Broadcast every Saturday, 8 to 9 p.m. The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.